0: Our second reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have... Everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of The Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord.
1: As Christmas approaches, it's an exciting time of year, right? You know, especially when you're a kid, you get very excited about it. Um, I, I remember though, that at some point later on in my childhood years, more like teenage years, I realized the other joy of Christmas, which was the December 26th joy of returning things, you know, and especially once I could drive myself. And at some point in high school, 16, 17, I thought I had the system gamed. Here's what it was. I figured I got a sweater that probably cost $50. And the next day after Christmas is when all the prices were slashed. So I was going to return the sweater and get like three things for the price of the sweater. And maybe even get the sweater again, just say I wanted it in a different color, right? And and pretty quickly I learned that, that the retailers had actually caught on to this as well. So my $50 sweater by the day after Christmas was now worth only $5 on the return. And it was not worth returning at all. Some stores still have fantastic return policies. And this is one of those things that goes apart from Christmas just throughout the year. You know some of those stores, you're probably loyal to some of them because of their return policies. I remember being in college, going to REI, a mountain hardware type place, picking up a backpack and four years later returning it saying, I didn't like it and they gave me a new one. People have that same story about other stores, right? Right? Um, I, I remember, um, my dad being faithful to Sears because at the time, if you bought an ax or a sledgehammer from Sears, and even if the wood handle broke, you could return it and get a new handle. I mean, you're using a sledgehammer and an ax, of course, eventually the thing's going to break, but Sears had this return policy that you could take it back and get a new ax handle. L.L. Bean, of course, has that famous return policy. You can exchange something for something else. And I remember visiting the Freeport Main Store, and they had a picture um, up in the Freeport Main Store of these old, tattered, like 20-year-old, totally worn-out hiking boots with a story on it about how the guy returned them to L.L. Bean and got a brand-new pair. I know of a lady who went to Nordstrom and said, I think this watch was bought at Nordstrom. And they took it and exchanged it for another one. It's a brilliant marketing campaign. We love exchanges when they come back the way we want them to. We can return our old, get something new, return something broken. We don't like the size. It's not working quite right. It builds customer loyalty. Who doesn't want an exchange where you can get whatever you want, right? But that's with stuff, with clothes and watches and axe handles I think some of us would like to be able to do that in life as well. We'd like to be able to exchange our career, turn in our spouse, our family of origin. You can't do this. Some of us try. It doesn't seem like that a lot of the stuff we'd like to be able to exchange in life, we can exchange. We'd like to be able to turn back our mistakes take our failures and drop them in and say, hey, give me something back that worked. Our reputation when we've soiled it. We'd like to be able to take things like our tragedies, our pain, the things that bring us deep sorrow and turn them in for something else. But you can't, it would seem. But the good news of the Bible suggests that God has a 100% exchange policy. doesn't matter how used, soiled, ruined, broken it is. You can turn it in. God is in the business, the Bible seems to suggest, of taking our brokenness, our sorrow, even our addiction and sin, and exchanging it for forgiveness and freedom and joy. New life. This is the good news of Christmas when God came down to right wrongs. This is the hope of the prophets like Isaiah that we had read. It's even written into the Old Testament law. And I actually want to start there before we get to Isaiah 61 because it's the backdrop of both Isaiah 61's hopes and what Jesus claims in Luke 4, our two readings today. The backdrop is this thing called the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament, Now, most of you, if you've ever read the Bible and read the Old Testament, at parts, it gets boring. And probably the most boring book of the Bible is Leviticus. Sorry, those of you who really love Leviticus. Leviticus has instructions on what to do with mildew in your house. But it's part of the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law had a couple of facets. Some of it was moral, like the Ten Commandments, what you should and should not do morally. Other parts of it had to do with religious actions, what could make you unclean and unable to worship the Lord, like mildew in your house. But some of it was judicial. Some of the law in the Old Testament had to do with the law of the land. And what's amazing if you compare the Old Testament law to other ancient documents and laws is just how forward the protections were in the Old Testament. The law of God in the Old Testament gave protections to the sorts of people no one else would give protection to. For instance, one of the laws in the Old Testament was that if you had a field, a farm, you were not allowed to harvest the corners of the fields because you were meant to leave a portion for the poor so that they could come through, the orphan and the widow and the foreigner could come through and not starve to death. You were legislated to care for the poor. In the ancient world, it was very common that if somebody wronged you, you could execute them directly. Lynch mobs were common. But in the law of Israel, they created cities of refuge, these cities all over Israel that if you had accidentally killed somebody, harmed somebody, broken something, you could flee to that city and be guaranteed court, justice, rule of law, protection from lynch mobs. The ancient world was a place that was unfriendly to foreigners. But in Israel, the law prescribed that they were to care for and protect foreigners, Because at one point, God says, you were a foreigner in Egypt and I protected you. It even prescribed Sabbath protections for the land itself. You know, Israel was supposed to rest every seventh day. But every seventh year, they were supposed to leave their fields fallow, not farm them. Give the land, the creation itself, a rest. But probably the high point of all of these advances and protections was the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee is written in Leviticus 25, and I'm just going to read one verse that talks about it. It says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year, so every 50 years, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, a jubilee year, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan." This was talking about an incredibly radical, generous exchange. You would return to the land that you were born in, even if you had lost it through indebtedness. In that day and age, if you became indebted, it wasn't Chase or Capital One that you owed thousands of dollars to. It was somebody that you knew, and eventually you'd become their indentured servant. And if you couldn't pay it back, you would remain their servant. Until the year of Jubilee, when all debts were canceled, all wrongs righted, all captives freed, land returned, you went back to your home of origin. It was a time of physical, economic, and social restoration for the poor, for the broken, for those whose lives had fallen apart. And what's amazing about the year of Jubilee is that it was restoration regardless of why you were in trouble. You might have gotten into difficulty because of tragedy. If you were a woman and your husband died, you became indebted, most likely. Or poor fortune. Your farmlands were flooded and you became indebted. But in the year of Jubilee, even those who had lost everything because of evil and wrong and selfish choices were enabled to exchange their poor fortune for good. Regardless of why, this was the hope for the poor, freedom for those who were indentured, all debts canceled. But the Jubilee was never celebrated by historical accounts. And it became one of these things in the prophets, and in the time of Jesus, of hope, that one day the Lord would come and bring the final Jubilee. You know, waiting for Christmas when you're a kid can be really hard. Because all sorts of things start swirling through your head in the weeks leading up to Christmas, and it usually goes something like this. Presents, and then Christmas music, and then presents, and then Christmas lights. Oh, and then Christmas cookies, and presents, and school's going to be out, and presents. And I can't imagine being a teacher of elementary school kids during those final weeks when kids just get squirrely because they're so excited for Christmas to come. In some ways you see that same anticipation in Isaiah. You see it starting in about Isaiah 40 till the end of the entire book, where Isaiah the prophet is looking forward to that day when the present of presence would come, when God would finally arrive to right all wrongs to restore all things. He's looking forward to the day of the Messiah. And that's what we get in Isaiah 61. Isaiah looking forward to the day of the Messiah, hopeful and anticipating. And so we read, I want to go jump over to that and see how it ties to our our, our passage in uh, the year of Jubilee. In Isaiah 61, looking for that day, that year of Jubilee, Isaiah prophesies, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He's speaking from the words of the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. One day the Messiah will come and bring the year of the Lord's favor. That word or that phrase, year of the Lord's favor, is directly referencing the year of Jubilee, the year when all debts were canceled, all captives set free, when the poor finally had a chance. Isaiah is looking for that day when the Jubilee finally comes, when the big exchange happens for all people. And so he talks about, you can see some of the things that he talks about in here. He talks about good news for the poor, and you think about, we talked about just a few minutes ago about that idea of being impoverished. Poverty, as many of us know if you've seen it or experienced it, is, is one of those cyclical things where poverty breeds poverty. Oftentimes because people are just constantly struggling and they can't help their kids and then their kids' kids fall into the same patterns. And what you'll find in areas where poverty exists is that it is endemic, it just keeps tumbling in on itself. And he's saying one day there will be good news for the poor. But when he's talking about poor, he does mean economic, but also social and physical hope for those who had no hope. He talks about binding up the brokenhearted here. That's a word in the Hebrew that's covering every form of breakdown. Emotional collapse all the way over to to the kind of collapse that comes when we're convicted of our sin and guilt. That one day we will be healed, one day we will be forgiven, and all of our brokenness will be fixed. And he proclaims liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, or another translation can actually be opening of eyes of the blind. One commentator suggested that this idea is covering the whole range of bondage that's possible. Economic bondage, judicial bondage, emotional bondage, spiritual bondage. In other words, one day when the Lord comes, there will be release of every sort. Isaiah is longing for that day when the Lord will arrive and restore all things. And he will bring healing and forgiveness and hope to everyone. He's talking about exchange. He's talking about a great exchange. And you see that exchange most explicitly in verse 3 when he is making a comparison of you have this but I'll give you that. That one day the Lord will take our mourning, our sorrow and give us comfort and joy. We read, the Lord will come to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise Instead of a faint spirit. Again, look at all the things that Isaiah is talking about here. He talks about ashes and mourning and a faint spirit. Ashes were the physical. The physical sign, the outward and physical sign of sorrow and grieving in the ancient world. You would take ashes and dump them on your head, not just the simple little cross on your forehead like Ash Wednesday, but literally you'd covered yourself in dirt, in things burned up, in sorrow and grief. It was an outward and physical sign of your sorrow. Then he uses the word mourning. Those who are in mourning. Mourning is your emotional and mental state of sorrow. And thirdly, he talks about a faint spirit which is a spirit of fear or despair. Being sorrowful to the point of despairing in such utter spiritual darkness. But what's the exchange that he he promises? The exchange is, instead of ashes, a beautiful headdress. That's a crown, which means you have a new status, a status of honor in society instead of one of grief. Grief. Instead of mourning, he promises the oil of gladness. When you talk about oil, you're talking about anointing somebody, either as a king or a priest. The idea being that instead of your mourning, your mental and emotional state of sorrow, it's now a new calling and direction of joy and gladness in your life. And instead of a faint spirit, it's a garment of praise. Instead of despair, it's you're, you're wearing celebration and worship. He's talking about exchanging our worst for his best. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, talking about Isaiah 61, says, Metaphors from the economic, political, physical, and social realms were used by Isaiah in Isaiah 61 to express the expectation of the total reversal of fortunes of Israel with the arrival of God's kingdom. Reversal, hope, total exchange. If you read through Isaiah 61 and you can identify with it, what ends up happening is we begin to think about things like, I want this to happen in our world. And I want this to happen in my life. You know, we don't have to look very far to recognize that we live in a fallen world. If you're around the globe, you can be dealing with diseases that kill you or your kids, and there's no medicine. There's no medical care. In the U.S., we have great medical care, but there are diseases we cannot solve, and people that we love get sick. Around the globe, wars are fought over ethnic divisions and fighting, and even here in America, we deal with racial tensions and divisions. There's not a place of hope for many of the poor in the world. A number of us were at the International Justice Missions Benefit Dinner this past week. IJM is one of our church's um, mission partners. And um, the gentleman who spoke there was talking about the challenge of being poor in the most poor parts of the world. And the challenge is this. You have no protection in the law. There is no rule of law, no safety which means the powerful exert violence, extreme violence on the poor, and they do so with impunity to the point where somebody who has power is able to to buy or traffic teenage girls and hold them up and make them service 15, 20 people a day because there's no way that they're going to be prosecuted and they know it. The poor have no hope. We see this and we say, Lord, come. Come. Exchange their sorrow for freedom. Usually on a less extreme level than in the global world, we deal with our own versions of the brokenness that Isaiah is talking about. You know, Christmas is a joyful time for many people, but for many others, it's a time of deep sorrow. If you've lost a parent or a spouse or a child, Christmas is just a reminder that they're gone. It's that season when you are thinking, oh, this was the song that he liked, or oh, we're making Christmas cookies, but she's not here. And so it can bring a deep, deep sorrow that is pushed against others who seem to be laughing all the time. We cycle in circles of fear and shame and addiction in our life that cycle of sin that spirals downward. when we say, will I ever be released from this? Isaiah seems to suggest that one day it will happen. But for some of us, we've dealt with seasons, or even now you're going through seasons of total collapse in life when everything seems to fall apart on top of itself. And I will say, seasons of total collapse are funny when it's Chevy Chase being Clark Griswold in Christmas vacation. And you have one of these days where, or a couple of days where everything seems to fall apart. Like, you know, the, your in laws show up, the Christmas lights don't work, then Cousin Eddie rolls in, and then all of a sudden the entire Christmas tree gets burned up, and you don't get the Christmas bonus you thought you were gonna have, and you go berserk. That's funny. But when it happens in someone's life that we know, or in our own life, It's incredibly painful when you go through a season or a couple of years when one thing after the other just collapses in on you. I know of one person who's dealing with just being alone, no family or friends nearby, struggling financially and constantly dealing with the next health issue. Another gentleman who not long ago lost his family, was losing his job, And then the very next thing, of course, it was his house that dealt with the destruction when nature came through. Everyone else's seemed to be fine. Why is it that some people, it feels like, you just say, not again, Lord. Why? Why Why them again? Sometimes in life, it can feel like you're walking around in a store looking for help and no one's there. Is there a return desk around here somewhere somewhere? I I need to exchange something. Yeah, I need to exchange my life. This one's not working. It's totally broken. Anywhere returns. And it just seems silent on the other end. And yet into that very state, the prophet Isaiah declares the word of the Lord. And Jesus, 700 years later, takes it up. He takes up that promise, that prophecy of Isaiah, and he declares that he is the answer to all of the Old Testament and the prophets' longings and hopes for the righting of wrongs and the restoring of all things and the healing of the broken and the forgiveness of sinners and the release of the captives. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives his first sermon. And the way he starts it is he goes to his hometown, to the synagogue in his hometown, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he reads before the people there, and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down. Because in the ancient world, in that day and age, rabbis sat to preach or teach. And he preaches the shortest, most powerful sermon ever. He says one phrase. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen done. Don't expect the same here. (laughs) He's Jesus. He can get away with that. (laughs) The claim that he's making is I am the Lord's anointed. I am God come to heal and free and restore as Isaiah hoped. Jesus is inaugurating, kicking off the year of the Lord's favor, meaning not just one year of Jubilee, but a new era of God's reign. And think about what happens in Jesus' life. Throughout his years of ministry, Jesus is doing Isaiah 61 stuff. Jesus binds up the brokenhearted, the emotionally and socially broken like Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene. Jesus releases captives, spiritual captives like the man that was filled with a legion of demons or even Lazarus who was bound captive in a tomb. Jesus goes around giving sight to the blind and he brings all people out of darkness into God's light. Jesus comes to inaugurate this kingdom hope. But notice this about Jesus. Jesus stops short. He's quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but he doesn't finish verse 2. What is the end of verse 2? It's not just to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It adds on, and the day of vengeance of our God. Has Jesus gone soft on us here? Well, in some ways, yes. Because he's saying, during this time that I am with you, I'm coming to bring release, freedom, inaugurate the year of the Lord's favor. But the day of vengeance of our God was something he also talked about. That one day we would all have to give account before God. The day of vengeance is going to come. But the reason he stopped short, I believe, It's because he he, he is the one who took the day of vengeance on himself. He's the one who bore the judgment we deserve. So he was able to come and say, here's the year of the Lord's favor. The day of vengeance will fall on me. That's the great exchange. The great exchange that was done at the cross. Jesus takes our poverty, our bondage, our mourning, our brokenheartedness, and gives us his good news, freedom, hope, and joy. It's what Isaiah 53 talks about just a few chapters earlier when the prophet declares that he was despised and rejected. He bore our griefs and on him was laid the iniquity of us all. All of our sin and all the judgment that we deserve was laid on him. So see that. At the cross, Jesus has taken all of your failures and sin. He's taken it upon himself, and he offers for you to be made right. Give him your bondage, your addiction, your anger control issues, your unforgiveness and bitterness, your fears. Give him your sin and guilt and shame. Let Jesus bear them and exchange them for freedom for forgiveness, for joy. How do you do it? Well, one thing that I saw in here that explains how to do it, it has to do with clothing. The metaphor of clothing is used two different times in Isaiah 61. In verse 3, he talks about a beautiful headdress, anointing oils of gladness, garments of praise. These are the things that are being exchanged through Jesus. But notice verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God. Why? Because he, God, has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. These things are gifts, and then God actually clothes us. Who needs to be dressed by somebody else? There's two kinds of people that do. Babies and the very sick. Little toddlers and babies need to be clothed by somebody else. And so do the very sick, the invalid. You want to experience freedom, the hope of Isaiah lived out in your life? You even want to become a Christian. To be a Christian is to realize that you're a helpless child and to admit that you're deathly ill, spiritually speaking. It's not to be strong, to accomplish, to do, to get yourself right, but it's to surrender. We need to be clothed. A group of us were sitting around last Sunday, and we read Isaiah 61, and as we were talking about it, the question that we were asking was, what speaks to you? Which of these hopes do you long for most? What do you need in your life right now? One guy pointed to verse 11, which talks about sprouting and gardens growing, and he said, I'm looking forward to growth, and I want a season of growth in my life. Another guy pointed to verse 3, where there was the promise of becoming oaks of righteousness, and said, I want to find my firm foundation in the Lord to be an oak of righteousness in the Lord. And two other guys talked about mourning. M-O-U-R-N, mourning. Sorrow and grief. One of them said in verse 3, looking at that, he said, I want to experience that gladness, praise, joy instead of my mourning. And even though it's been several years since I lost this family member, the constant ache is there. The ache of losing someone close. You know, the reality is that the exchange that God promises may for some people be in part Right now. But the hope of Christ crucified and risen, the hope of the second coming, the advent of the Lord, is that one day it will be full. Verse 7 says that all of these hopes are that they shall have an everlasting joy, an eternal hope, the joy of an eternal exchange. Now, I don't know if I'm reaching here, but there's some, there's some suggestion if you put these two together, those who are mourning being given joy and the hope of an everlasting joy is that those who have lost a spouse or a parent or a child, they may be able to imagine, you may be able to imagine the healing that comes with time when the sorrow and pain is not quite so crushing as it was at first. But it's much harder to imagine complete joy, total gladness and celebration in the face of loss. But somehow in eternity, there seems to be a hint that even our greatest losses and pains will themselves be the place, the very source of our greatest joy that at that place, God will meet us because he is a resurrecting and redeeming God and he will exchange our deepest sorrows for his far greater joys. God's exchange policy does not run out. It is eternal. Now we live in an already not yet kind of tension. Right now, we can experience the freedom and the joy and the hope of Jesus Christ when we, like a child, come to him But we're looking forward to that day when he will come and right all wrongs finally, when the eternal joys are ours for good. Until then, we do sing that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We're here in exile, set us free. We mourn here, bring us joy. Let's pray. Lord God, During this time of Christmas, this season of Advent, many of us have a lot of joy and excitement, but for many others, it's just a hard time, a reminder of what's no longer there. For some of us, it's even just the challenge of going through life, recognizing that we are broken and life has not turned out as we wanted. Help us to find in you, Jesus Christ, the source of our joy and freedom and healing now. And give us a hope to trust that one day, one day when you come, Emmanuel, you will right all wrongs eternally. Give us that hope even now. Amen.
0: Yeah.